Morning, everyone. Um, I'm just going to pray for myself and for you right off the start, because Ecclesiastes requires some thinking and some work. So we need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. Let's pray. Father God, I pray first for myself um, that uh, your Holy Spirit has um, complete jurisdiction over everything that I say, and even after things escape my mouth, the Holy Spirit does things afterwards to make them work um, in people's hearts and minds. And Father, I pray for the hearts and minds of our listeners, um, that as we look into your word, that uh, you are informing us what you would have us know from your scripture, that it's living and active, that is accomplishing your good work, and that uh, we depend on it for our very life. And so, Father, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for Solomon and the Holy Spirit that preserved this. We thank you that we have this opportunity to hear it and learn from it. We just pray that, uh, that we would leave uh, not unchanged, um, but in greater appreciation, in greater love of you and understanding the beauty uh, of your purpose in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we're continuing, as obviously, on our series on Ecclesiastes, and um, as, we, as we go through Ecclesiastes, there's a couple of ideas that you just always have to keep in the back of your mind as you're going from chapter to chapter um, and remembering about the book. The teacher, um, almost certainly Solomon, has embarked on a careful examination of life under the sun. That's a repeated sentence that you'll see. And he's looking at this life under the sun, this transient, physical, human life, and all the paths to satisfaction that we might seek in this life, and to discover either purpose or futility in the search. And he tips his hand pretty early on in this book uh, about his findings. All the purely humanistic, materialistic paths down which we seek meaning end in futility, to put our hope in them is like chasing after wind. It's like grasping at vapors. But he wants to make an argument, what you would call an apologetic. His apologetic is towards readers who are disenfranchised with life, who are cynical, who are looking for meaning, who are feeling what Solomon is feeling. And he wants to say, I'm right there with you. I've looked at everything in life just as you have, better than you have, and I agree with you. This is miserable business that we have under the sun. But as he goes through this apologetic, this technique of teaching, he keeps shining rays of light into the argument to say, I've examined what's under the sun, but there is something that's not under the sun. There's something that shines into the darkness. And there are things that do give us hope, not in striving after the things of this world, but in recognizing God in all things. And his argument is deliberately and purposefully exposing the futility and darkness we experience. And it even amplifies it. You might be reading Ecclesiastes for yourself right now and saying, this is the most depressing book I've ever read. And that's intentional. That is what Solomon is trying to do. The message of Ecclesiastes is found in what you experience reading Ecclesiastes. It's kind of a meta thing, right? Like there's a message in the content of Ecclesiastes, but there's a message to us in what we experience by reading Ecclesiastes. And Solomon wants to pull us along in this journey that he's on. Last week in chapter 2, our teacher, our guide, Solomon, led us down the paths of intellectualism, hedonism, cynicism, materialism, and apart from God, none of those paths lead to hope. 
But he concluded with an affirmation that contentment and joy can be found if we accept those things as gifts from God. Wisdom, pleasure, laughter, and, and material pleasures can, can provide joy to us as we go through life. The sooner we encounter God in our life, the sooner we can begin avoiding regret and reducing harm and ending in despair by trying to make created things ultimate things rather than making our creator our ultimate hope. But that's just chapter 2, and that's still a pretty incomplete argument. Solomon has a lot more of life to examine in the next several chapters, much more about God that he wants his cynical readers to lean into and to learn. In chapter 3 now, Solomon turns from various sort of philosophical isms. He's not talking about hedonism and cynicism and materialism now. He shifted gears, and he turns towards the whole span of everyday life that we experience. So maybe you're not much of a philosopher. Maybe you're not into the isms. You're just like, yeah, but what just about everyday life? Well, Solomon wants to talk about that in chapter 3. And it begins with sort of an echo of chapter 1. Chapter 3 opens with an observational poem, probably one of the most famous poems in the Bible, made famous by the birds in the 70s, um, and concludes with the teacher's insights. And it's best just to let the Word of God speak and discover what it would teach us through Solomon. So here's the circumstance of our life under the sun that must be reconciled. So here is Solomon just observing life in Ecclesiastes 3 in poetic form. There is an appointed time for everything. And I'll just pause there and say that Solomon has once again tipped his hand with the word appointed. We already get a glimpse of where Solomon is going at the end of this argument because for something to be appointed, somebody has to appoint it. So before he goes into all this randomness of life, he already is tipping his hand that this isn't going to be random. I just want you to remember that. Because the more we can remember as we go through Ecclesiastes, the better equipped we'll be to read it. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under the sun. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And he concludes with where his readers are probably at. What profit, what gain... What benefit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? In other words, what profit is there to the work of life that we toil at in all of this? And it's a rhetorical question. His answer he knows under the sun is, there is no profit. And so in chapter 1, Solomon observes the cyclical nature of reality in the natural world. The rivers flow into the sea, but it never fills up. The water returns to the starting place. The winds blow around and around, coming back to the beginning. Generations come and go, but nothing new changes, and no one remembers. But here in chapter 3, Solomon turns to the detail of human life cycles and human experiences, how they are transitory and repetitious. So Solomon has in this poem here in mind the totality of human experience. The poem is written in 14 stanzas, or two pairs of sevens. 
And seven in the Hebrew is the number of completion or perfection. And so the double sevens is a complete, complete survey of life. Each of the pairs that makes up the double sevens are presented as opposites in a spectrum so that it is everything within the spectrum is included. It begins with the complete sweep of the entire human life lived under the sun. There's a time to give birth and a time to die, planting and uprooting, killing and healing, seeking and giving up as lost, keeping and discarding, silence and speaking, from love to hate, from peace to war, just... Everything is encompassed in this double seven completeness of life under the sun. Now, I want you to note here that this text is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Solomon is not telling Christians that there might be a time to be hateful or a time to make war. Now, the Bible might say that somewhere else. I'm just being clear. The Bible's not saying that here, I don't want you to go away and turn to this text and justify why this is the time for me to hate you, as has been appointed by God. I am justified in hating you because this is my appointed time. That's not what this text is. It is not prescriptive, like you would get a prescription from a doctor. It is descriptive. Solomon is describing life, not making any value judgments about life, just that it is this way. Now, all of these seven pairs of experiences happen to everyone under the sun. We have all fought and then reconciled. We have all loved, and at times we have all hated. Maybe some right now in some parts of your life and relationships are harboring hate right now, if we're honest. We have all gained friends on some days, and on other days we have lost friends. We have children and we bury parents. We are a healing presence at times in people's lives and at other times we wound others and tear them down. These things we do and have done to us all through our lives. And as you're sitting there, as you're listening online, you can just be thinking about these times and when you've been on one side or the other as the receiver or the giver of these. Solomon says we all do this all the time. We have these seasons of love and hate and death and birth and peace and war. Solomon finds himself facing the same challenge, asking the same question of chapter 1 and 2 again. What is the question? What profit is there to the work in which he toils? That's the question Solomon is trying to find answers to. And if we only look at our circumstances, if we only consider the poem of life that we find under the sun, then we know there's no profit, no purpose in this. What matters that people live or die, are happy, are sad, are at war or at peace? In the end, it doesn't matter. It all ends the same anyway. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French philosopher of existentialism in a sort of modern-day Solomon himself who made it his life purpose to search for meaning in life apart from God. Very specifically, John Paul wanted to discover if there was meaning without religion. He had no interest in that. And his conclusion is anything, anything would be better than this agony of mind, this creeping pain that gnaws and fumbles and caresses one and never hurts quite enough. (laughs) Happy guy to have at a party, right? Like, who invited this guy? That's what he determined when he examined existence. 
Why do intellectuals and artists, philosophers like Sartre and singers like Kurt Cobain, all seem to arrive at this conclusion? Maybe you're not a philosopher. Maybe you're not into Jean-Paul Sartre. So let's go to someone a little more down-to-earth, Annie Lennox. All those years of creating music or trying to express something of a dark shadow and existential angst that I have felt most of my life and still feel today, to not be overwhelmed by it. She's saying, this is, this is why I create, this is why I sing, this is why I tour, this is why I write, because I'm just trying to not be overwhelmed by the existential angst of life. And so to find his answer to this problem that the poem poses that there is no point to this, the teacher's going to have to dig deeper. He's going to have to get underneath the apparent pointlessness of the transient events of our lives to see if there is something hidden in there that isn't obvious at first glance. And that's exactly what he finds, and that's exactly where his answers lie. In brief, Solomon's search leads him to recognize that even though the events of life are the same for the person who acknowledges God and the same for the person who does not acknowledge God, Our life experiences for me, Paul Graham, and philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre are the same. We experience the same things in life. But the two people do not have the same perspective on those same events, depending on whether you acknowledge God or don't acknowledge God. In a universe which is ruled by the providence of God, for the one who is in relationship with that God, or is not in relationship with that God, Events are meaningless, but for the one that is in relationship with that living God, then no events are meaningless. I'm tipping my hand to the answer that Solomon is getting at, so you can follow with me. I'll just say it again. In the universe of these repetitious, seeming fruitless events, if you have no relationship with God, they really are meaningless. Every event is meaningless. But if you have relationship with God, if you acknowledge God, then every event and every circumstance has meaning. There are no meaningless events will be Solomon's final conclusion. With God, everything has meaning. Without God, nothing has meaning. And that's what we will learn from Solomon. So he's asked the question. After this poetic observation, this challenging question, Solomon provides his answer in four parts. And they say in preaching that as you're preparing your sermon, you're building scaffolding scaffolding to unpack what the text says, and then when you preach it, you shouldn't show people your scaffolding. You should take it down and just show them the finished work. But I think it's helpful here to show the scaffolding. So I'm going to show you the scaffolding <laughs> that, that you see in this text. He's going to give his answer, shifting from poem into prose. Solomon's going to, going to give his answer in four parts, and the four parts are, were cued into them because he says, I have seen, I perceive, I perceive, I have seen. He makes four statements of what he's seen. What has Solomon seen in life? What are the four things that Solomon has seen that he gives as answers? That's the scaffolding around our answers. Answer number one, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has, uh, might say beautiful in your translation, he has also set eternity in their hearts so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Okay, that sounds confusing. It's confusing in English. It's confusing in the Hebrew too. Um, But here's what I think he's saying. He switches to prose here. 
He says, I've observed this whole span of our life, and now he says, I've seen something else. I've seen the task that God has given for man to live in all these activities, these occupations, and what should look, what we should look at in these life experiences of joy and sorrow, we will look at differently from this perspective. Firstly, that God has made everything appropriate in its time. The result of our observation of life in verses 1 to 8 should not be despair because God will eventually make everything good or pleasant or appropriate or right in its time. God makes them so. God is in control. There is a big pointer towards the sovereignty of God here in terms of our life circumstances, whether it's war or peace, whether it is love or hate, whether it is gathering or disposing of things. Every season in life is under the sovereign control of God who will make everything beautiful in its time. There is a time when he will make it beautiful and bring everything in life to accomplish a beautiful purpose. Just hold on to that idea because Solomon's going to tell us what that beautiful purpose is that God is making in everything in life. Secondly, he says, he has also set eternity in their heart or put eternity in man's heart. So externally, God has hidden a not fully revealed purpose into the full spectrum of human experiences, all the things that are happening externally for us, God has a purpose in them. And then internally, in our heart, he set eternity into the heart of mankind. The remotest sense of time, sense of time, First Chronicles 16.36, uses this word to recreate the phrase from everlasting to everlasting. That's what Solomon is, that's in our heart, everlasting to everlasting is in our heart. And so God has created this tension between our human experience where God is sovereignly appointing times for joy and times for sorrow, and they pass away and they fade on one hand, and on the other hand, he has put this sense of eternity in our hearts, transience in creation and eternity in our hearts. And there's this tension that we feel, this tugging, this calling, this purpose that we know exists. And we know that the full sweep of human experience is somehow tied to that eternity that we feel in our heart. Remember that depressing French philosopher, Sartre? He, he figured this out exactly. It's incredible. When I was Googling away, trying to think, like, what do philosophers think about this? I run across this. This is exactly... What Jean-Paul discovered, that creeping pain that gnawed at him, listen to his conclusion as he arrives at the end of his philosophical inquiry. You can't make this up. Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. He, he was so close. He was right there. He got it. If we don't have this sense of eternity in our hearts, then life is purposeless. And life loses meaning as soon as you eliminate the eternal from life. He actually gets it, that sense that God has placed in us eternity and it tugs at our hearts towards meaning. The tragedy of Jean Paul is that he actually found the nut. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. And he found the nut and he had it in his little squirrely paws. And then he lost it. He he couldn't take it. Because to him, he had to believe that this feeling of eternity was an illusion because he wanted life without God. He was not going to reconcile with life with God. And so that feeling of eternity that he knew was there, he said, it has to be an illusion. He was so close. And it's a tragedy. 
Even still, Solomon acknowledges, although this is true, what God is doing, we don't really see it all clearly. We don't see exactly what God is doing in all of these things in our life. We don't know exactly what God is doing as he is drawing us into this sense of eternity. We're not given the answer. Why this particular joy? Why this particular pain in my life, Lord? Why this? Why, why does this have to happen to me? The, the existential question that we all ask all the time, why, Lord, is what Solomon is asking. And he says here, we don't find out the why, God, all the time. We just know that he is doing things in their appropriate time for an eternal purpose. Just as Jesus asked the disciples in Luke 13, why do you think the Tower of Siloam fell on those 18 particular men? Do you think it has something to do with them? Do you think it has to do with ending their life on this particular day? Or as the disciples asked Jesus in John 9, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? We ask these kinds of questions. Why this at this time? Why is this happening? Why this joy? Why am I blessed? Why this illness? Why am I suffering? And Solomon says, God is at work and we don't always see why. At the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul is caught up in this mystery of God's hand at work in calling people to himself. And it appears at the end of chapter 11 that he kind of bursts into a little hymn that may have been popular at the time. A hymn written from texts taken from Isaiah and from Job. He says, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? That's Isaiah. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Job. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There is an unsearchable mystery of what God is doing in the transient, cyclical joys and sorrows of our lives. But Solomon says, I've observed, I've seen, he's doing something. And he set eternity in our hearts so that we will be drawn to it. And even atheists like Sartre can see it. God is shedding light into Israel through his prophets and through David and through Solomon, a light that would shine at its brightest in the coming of Jesus and in the new covenant and that we see more clearly. The first part of his answer that he has given us here is that God has hidden purpose in these joys and sorrows. In the span of our life, from birth to death, from love to hate, everything in between, God has hidden a purpose in there, and he's accomplishing something with it. And he's put a longing in our heart to respond to that purpose, even if we don't fully understand it. But he's got more to his answer. There's three more seen or perceived statements the second one, and we'll be really brief on it, is this. He says, I know, it's literally, I've perceived, I've seen that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. You may recognize that one. He came to that conclusion in chapter 2. So he just restates what he already said in chapter 2. Part of my answer is, in response to these things that happen in life, that it's good to eat and drink and see good in his labor and to receive those things as a gift of God. Don't get distracted. Don't get caught up in searching for meaning in the joys and the sorrows themselves. Don't be looking at the events of life for meaning. Take those events as gifts from God where meaning comes from. But here in chapter 3, he wants to go beyond what he said in chapter 2. And so he goes into another answer. 
that God is doing something more important and more eternal in the apparently transient events of our lives. There's not just joy in the gift of God's things as we live here. Solomon says God is doing even more than that. And I think we see it a little bit clearer if I just change the formatting a little bit of the verses in 14 and 15. So this is his third I see statement. I know, I perceived that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. Here's what Solomon says. I see more. I see more going on in life. I see more underneath the surface. I see that eternal God does eternal things, that our seasons come and go. We make war and then peace. We love and we hate. We heal and we harm. We live and we die. Our experiences are transient. No one remembers our work. No one remembers our accomplishment. Generations come and generations go. But I see that God is different. God is doing an eternal thing, and what God does will remain. And when Solomon describes the eternal work of God with these two parallel statements, there's a description of what God is doing and then a statement of its purpose. First of all, what is this work that God is doing? Here's a character of it. Nobody can add to it and nobody can take away from it. This eternal work that God is doing, Solomon says, here's the principle of it. It's utterly resistant to our influence. We cannot thwart the will of God. We cannot affect it. It will not change. This eternal work that God is doing is completely resilient and resistant to any of our preferences and any of our attempts to change it. Okay, if that's true, what effect does that resilience have on us? Well, God has so worked that men should fear him. In other words, when it finally dawns on us that eternal God is doing eternal things and that this eternal God that's doing eternal things we cannot add to or take away from, he will not be thwarted by us, he will not be changed by us, he is utterly resolute in what he is going to accomplish, there is an effect that has on us, and in my experience, it's roughly three o'clock in the morning, we wake up and we run into this existential brick wall that says, fear God, because you're not changing his mind, and he's going to do what he's going to do. And that's what Solomon says here. There is an eternal God who's doing eternal things, and you can add nothing to what he's doing or take nothing away. He's absolutely resilient to what you're doing. And eventually, at some point in your life, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you say, there is nothing left but surrender. (laughs) Just fear God. Just reverence him. This is really the key verse of this chapter. Because the, the, the first B there, For God has so worked that men should fear him. Solomon is saying, this is a plan that God is doing deliberately. You keep looking at life and saying, wondering why it's this way. You wonder why you have this existential angst, Annie Lennox. You wonder why you can't reconcile your life. God has so worked it this way on purpose so that you would fear him. Deal with the God who is there because he's not going anywhere. You can pound your fists on his chest. You can kick him in the shins. You can bat your eyelash at him and try and win him over. You can try to trick him. You can try to argue him out of existence. You can try to wheedle your way around his holiness with excuses. And yet, at 3 o'clock in the morning, God is still there. And you're not changing him. 
God has deliberately appointed these times of joy and sorrow and put eternity in the hearts of men. And he has sovereignly appointed these times deliberately. It is a deliberate plan of God, Solomon says. To accomplish this result, you will reverence him. There's an old hymn, 1858, it was written called, My God, I Thank You. And it really has the perfect sense and the perfect verse of what Solomon is saying here with his observation of the joys and sorrows of our lives and God's eternal purpose in deliberately ordaining our experiences to draw us into reverencing him or fearing him. It goes like this. It says, I thank you too that all my joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours and thorns remain, so that earth's joys may be my guide and not my chain. See that? The hymn writer here, Adelaide, he got it. It's like, I'm glad that this is what life is like. Because one of the things that this does is it guides me to God. It doesn't chain me to earth. We, we get set in our career, in our materialism, in our hedonism, in our cynicism, in our joys, in our pains, whatever. If we're looking for meaning there, the things of this world will chain you to this world. They will become your idols. They will consume you. But if you get your eyes off of your circumstances and onto the God who has ordained them, they will be your guide because God has so purposed that man might reverence him. That's... Solomon's main lesson here, the whole spectrum of human experience, the double seven complete experience of life, all joys, all sorrows, the existential dread we encounter in our hearts, all of it is meant to be a guide that leads us to God, not a chain that binds us to futility. Solomon sees dimly here what Paul says most clearly for us in Romans. Romans chapter 8, we love these verses. It's no accident that Solomon says the exact same thing Paul says. Paul says the exact same thing Solomon says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren and sisters. That's you and me, sisters and brethren. (laughs) We are the many brethren who are conformed, who Jesus is the firstborn of. So let me restate this as Solomon would say it. Paul speaking as Solomon would say it, we know that God causes all these joys and sorrows, all things work together for our good. Why do all these things? God is working all these things together for our good, our ultimate good, our eternal good, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the good that God is working in all things, both joys and sorrows. All things lead us through Christ to God. Now he makes a second statement here. And in the interest of time, I'm going to go really quickly through it. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. uh, For God seeks what has passed by. In a confusing chapter, in a confusing book, this is probably the most confusing verse. In 15 seconds, this is what I think it means. Solomon says, here's another thing that's true about this eternal work of God. God already, everything that has been and everything that will be has already been for God. He's got the whole spectrum of time in his existence. And in seeing everything that has happened and will happen and has happened, God seeks what has passed by. Or can be translated, God seeks what is pursued. 
And so I think all Solomon is getting at here is that God has this eternal perspective, and when he has this eternal perspective across all of time and all events, God is choosing and seeking those that he pursues. As time passes by, God has his eye on everything. And finally, there's one more I've seen statement. Solomon wants to deliver to conclude his lesson as to why God has filled our lives with joy and sorrow. Why has he put eternity on our hearts? Why do we live these transient realities of gaining friends and losing friends and heartbreak and and falling in love and war and peace? Why is this happening? To reverence him, yes, and to seek what is pursued, yes, but there is a final ultimate end that Solomon finds God is doing in the midst of our lives. And I think formatting helps us see it here too. Furthermore, moreover, beyond all of this, there's one more thing I want you to see. I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. What does Solomon keeps going under the layers of what's going on in our lives. What does Solomon sees? He's seen that where men claim to be just, there's wickedness. He's also seen that where men claim to be righteous, there's wickedness. Solomon sees that we're all wicked. We're all sinners. Even the ones that claim to be doing right, even the ones that claim they are holy. We're all touched by sin, even the best of us. And if we are all under the same hand of an immutable, immovable, eternal, sovereign creator, and Solomon says, this is what I've seen, there is a reckoning for all of us that's coming. Why is God seeking the past by? Why has God put eternity in our hearts? And why has God appointed these joys and sorrows to be our guide so that we might reverence him rather than deny him just so that we get some purpose in our lives? No. Not just so that we get some purpose in our lives under the sun. By all means, Solomon does answer the question saying, you know, living life with God certainly will allow us to properly enjoy our blessings and to have purpose in our work. But that's not the most important thing to Solomon. What is most important, what we really need, goes deeper. And he keeps driving it into his listeners. It's this, that holy God will judge everyone. The righteous among us and the wicked will both be judged, and we're really all wicked, And a time is there for every matter and every deed that we do under the sun. So all of our life experience will eventually come under the scrutiny of an all-knowing, an all-seeing, an immutable, immovable, perfect, righteous, holy judge. And that needs to be reckoned with. And where is that time? He says, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Where is there? Time is where? It's at the judgment seat of God. And this is why the teacher is teaching. This is why the preacher is preaching. This is why Solomon is writing. This is why the Spirit is prompting. This is why God is speaking to us in the joys and sorrows of our lives, in babies born and parents buried, in first loves and in broken hearts, in sickness and in health, in rejoicing and in mourning. God is speaking. God is seeking so that our joys and our sorrows will be our guides and not our chains. Because a time is coming when we will give an account for whether we reverenced God or whether we rejected God. And he doesn't want us to reject him. He wants us to reverence him so that we are ready for that day. Paul says what Solomon is saying in Romans 13. You know the time 
that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. (laughs) Paul is just making an obvious statement. Jesus is coming. When we first believed 15, 20 years ago on the road to Damascus, me and Luke and a bunch of other guys, salvation is even closer now. Paul says to those in Romans, he says, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Because salvation is close at hand, closer than when we first believed. And you need to wake up. That's what Solomon is saying. That's what Solomon is saying to his cynical listeners as they sit in the bar and he's talking about his life experiences and they're like saying, amen, brother, preach it. Life sucks and it's cyclical and then you die. Solomon says, you got to wake up. You need to wake up to the purpose of joy and pain in your life. You need to wake up and follow that longing that God has set in your heart and that has actually physically hurt your chest sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you need to reverence God before you come to that judgment seat. Solomon has experienced it all, seen it all, examined it all, done it all. And as Solomon peers... He sees, he perceives, he perceives, he sees, and as he perceives and sees most carefully at the realities of life, he sees that God is behind it all, giving it meaning, giving it purpose for one thing, to draw us into reverence of him before that judgment day comes. We need to reverence God, not reject him, because that day will come. And there will be no reverencing or rejecting on that day. It will just be a final decision. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beams of light that you shine into Solomon's heart and that Solomon shines into his argument to his young listeners. (laughs) Again, we can just picture an older Solomon at the end of his reign and having lived his life and partied hard and worked hard and accomplished all and gathered all and done all and seen all And he just wants his listeners to hear. I've seen it. I've done it. Let me tell you the light that penetrates the darkness. It is that God is sovereign. He's in control. He is appointing these times. He's put this longing in your heart. He is working his eternal purposes. You cannot thwart him. He's done it so that you will reverence him. Father, that we might listen to Solomon. That we might listen to Paul that we might listen to Jesus and we would realize that we need to wake up. Today is the day of our salvation. The kingdom of God is right near at hand. Whether we're here in church today on a Sunday or whether we're lying awake at 3 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday night, the kingdom of God is right there beside us. You've put it there through your son Jesus. We just have to reach out and take it. Father God, I just pray that if there is any that have felt this angst, that have felt this futility, that are in the grips of this despair, that they would follow Solomon, follow Paul, follow Jesus, and see the light that there is a sovereign God in control, that there is a purpose to everything, that without God, everything in life is meaningless. With God, nothing is meaningless, not even our deepest sorrows. Father, I just pray that we would learn that for ourselves as Christians. I pray that we would communicate that to our friends who don't yet see that light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.